0: Hi Ren, thanks for joining me, friend.
1: Hi Toshin. So nice to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. Uh so we trained together at Maple, and you've been a good friend for several years now. And uh yeah, someone who's been really inspiring to me. I think I've learned a lot from you and uh seen you throw yourself into your training in some ways that have been uh meaningful for me and want to take this time to get to know you better and understand you better and uh as, as i was mentioning to you previously i think there are some virtues that you have that i'm like oh i don't even know which virtue this is or what what's going on here and um so i'd like to talk to you and kind of understand you better and hear about your life and uh your beliefs and your values and um the choices you've made in your life. And it's been in, you know, fr- from what I know so far, you've had a really interesting life and been a lot of places physically and uh, interpersonally and, you know, in a, a lot of different plot points in your life. So I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear about that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, really in general, this is something I've been chewing on recently. I feel like if your eyes are open, your ears are listening and and your heart is open and you watch people and are present with people everyone can be inspiring and you can learn something from everyone and everyone is uh just amazing it's like wow uh like the challenges they've gone through or the choices that they've made or um the way that they've shown up to the circumstances of their life there's like something that you can learn from everyone even if it's just something small and you're someone who I've, I've learned so much from. And so really want to take this time to ask you about your life and hear about the things that you think and feels precious to have that opportunity. And yeah, really grateful for that. So thank you. And uh, yeah, I would love to just start by asking you the question that I ask everyone, which is tell me about your life and what's happened so far. It's, it's almost, you know, you you and I have talked about reincarnation uh, and, Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost like I'm asking, how's your day going today? Except with your life, on the scale of your life, like what's happened so far? <laughs> what's going on today in this life? So I would love to hear about <laughs> your life so far. And you can answer this any way you want, at whatever length you want. And we'd just love to hear whatever you'd like to share. Yeah.
1: Well, first, I just want to say I felt deeply touched by what you've said so far and yeah, I'm just I'm probably going to cry. It's just going to happen. <laughs> Your
0: tears are very welcome.
1: I'm just, just going to cry. It's okay. <laughs> I have Tissues. I'm in that kind of place today. Mm. My emotions are very, very present. Um. yeah honestly when it comes to like telling a life story something that i feel like i want to work on is creating the myth of who renshin is i don't know how to do this but i think it's actually important there's a way that like sp- like significant spiritual figures like the buddha like they told specific things about their life to construct a mythology that can be passed down to like teach something, use their life to teach something. And so I'm trying to still figure out what the teaching is of my life, but it seems important to like develop that over time. Um, so this is just another way to, pra- for me to practice, like, how am I going to tell the myth of renchen today? Um, I think it really does start from before I was born. Like, all the stuff that I'm bringing in from before this life has shaped this life significantly. Um, And I'm still investigating, like, what happened. Like, I don't even know what happened before. But I'm getting these, like, little senses of, like, hmm. In terms of just, like, karma, like, choices, past choices. But also, like past traumas from previous generations, intergenerational traumas, and also like vows. What vows am I bringing into this life that I'm here to fulfill? Um, so, there's a couple big themes, maybe a few big themes. One is, is this word called fracture internal fracture fracture between people fracture between groups fractures between between nations and um for me it goes back to like so I'm um ethnically Korean and, Uh, my grandfather, who recently passed, fought in the war between North and South. And I've also personally been to like the that the demilitarized zone that is the border between North and South Korea. That's just like this fenced up um, soldiers guarding like both sides. If 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 they see anybody, they'll shoot them. Like if anyone tries to cross. That kind of deep deep fracture is something that I feel very determined in this life to learn how to resolve. And um, so there's one, that's one theme kind of running through this life. Um, Another theme that's coming up more. Like recently for me, is um, like a kind of ostracization or scapegoating, or when a tribe decides to um, kick someone out of the tribe. And like, they can be very violent. And so um, it's almost like a dream that I had, but there's this image of like a tribe, my tribe, I'm in this tribe, and they're holding all these spears up against me, and I'm on the edge of a cliff, and they're telling me, you know, this is over, you can't be here anymore. It's time for you to go. And and they're basically I mean I'm up against the cliff. And so I'm basically being forced to jump off. And um that is another deep theme running through my life is this like this deep mistrust. I have like this deep mistrust of groups. And I always have this deep, there's, there's some kind of deep fear that runs through me of like, okay, when are they going to like drop the, drop the bomb on me? When I'm just like waiting for that day when they decide to execute me. And um, in this dream, they don't tell me why. So I never know why. And I never know when. And so there's just like this anticipation, this fear, this mistrust of groups, even of groups that are my family. They're like family members to me. So um, it's like uh, if I just talked about my own current incarnation, it would be hard to see why these themes are there because it's like, I have had a relatively fine life. Like it hasn't been all that like full of conflict or war or betrayal or any of that. But all of this stuff is like somehow in me um, and has de- deeply impacted like my whole existence. Yes. Um but um I would say that the first place this shows up is my family, my family relations as a child. And I um yeah, it's so weird. My um so I'm like a second generation Korean American and so My grandparents brought their kids, including my dad, over here when my dad was a child. And um, Korea was, like, at that time, just, like, super poor, super messed up, like, like, uh, so much conflict and poverty, one of the poorest countries in the world at the time. So my grandparents escaped that poverty to come here and then, like, boom my 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 dad and his three sisters like grew up basically like went to school here they all went to college and my dad became like a doctor and like you know my aunts do other things and it's like a kind of a kind of success story in a way like they they figured out how to make it you know um and I definitely grew up with enough, like, you know, I'd say upper middle-class lifestyle in the suburbs of like Los Angeles, where all the Koreans like to go, (laughs) a lot of them. Um, But it's so weird to have wealth when you don't come from a wealthy background. And uh, I don't know, this is just projection, I guess, but there's a way that I think they just kind of bought into like a, they just kind of bought into like a dream of like what it means to make it like success, like have a nice house with nice cars and like, you know, wife, husband, two kids, a dog, um, Good education, lots of extracurriculars, um, pretty big house. Although I don't know, my dad grew up saying that it wasn't that big, but <laughs> I know now. I know now. It's like most people don't live in houses like that. Um, and the weird unintended consequences of creating that kind of dream for yourself um, thinking that this is like what success is. So I grew up as it turns out, just super isolated because if you're poor, you all share like little tiny spaces together and you're together all the time. You have no choice. There's like no privacy. You just like are forced to be together and to survive together. And in this house, each kid had their own, like my brother and I had our own separate rooms and we had our kids room where we hung out and then the adults hung out in like a totally separate part of the house. Uh, We ate dinner together once a week. Uh, My dad was working all the time. My mom was a housewife. And so we would spend time with our mom, but like not quality time, I'd say. And um, I was so isolated Um, and it was easy because we just did not have to interact. And also my personality was one of just like withdrawn like in my own head, just like, so I didn't really, I didn't really come out of my shell much anyway. I just was in like books and video games. So that early disconnection from family, I just never really learned how to be with other humans. <laughs> uh, and I never, I didn't, I didn't really trust my family. Yeah, it's very judgmental. Um and to lay out the timeline, as soon as I left for college, I basically just didn't talk to my family. Like, mom, dad. I, I texted my mom sometimes, but she'd call me sometimes. But I basically lost contact with my brother. Most mostly lost contact with my dad and my whole extended family. I just did not talk to them for s- almost twenty years, <laughs> um, and only ever since coming here to Maple have I learned the importance of that connection, and that I, and then it's sort of like. I started to make an effort to connect back to my roots and started reaching out and writing cards. The Tibetan nun came to Maple once and she was like, if you're not friends with your parents, like, forget about enlightenment. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh crap. uh oh and so she gave me the assignment to like write my mom like a card just like you know a hallmark card just like fill it out send it to her and so i started actually doing that i sent my mom a card i sent my dad a card i sent my brother a card started sending people cards that was good. Mm. Um, <sighs> man. Yeah. So part of why I feel like I came here into this body in this life is to heal a lot of intergenerational trauma that's coming from my family line, the whole War between North and South Korea is really like this war between brother and brother, sister and sister. Like it's like Koreans are deeply. There's a deep familial familial connection in that in that uh, in their ethnicity in that nationality. Like they deeply, you know, they care deeply about that blood relation. And so for that war to have like happened, I think was deeply traumatizing, deeply. um, I mean, it left a deep scar in like all of our lineages. And um, I think in part, I'm here to help heal that wounding um, yeah, and, uh, as you say, like, I've jumped around to lots of different communities and everything and lived in a bunch of different places and, like, um, that sort of theme is definitely come up in like lots of different ways in my life and has actually made it really hard to land anywhere like i just was always kind of like ready to get up and leave any place that i ended i was like that i ended up um there's a part of me that was just like ready to um jump ship and find the next thing um And I would say that Maple is the first place where I've finally been able to just land and commit. And I'm just like committed to this group of people that um, it's like a new family for me. Mm. Yeah. There are many threads I'm leaving out, but I'll just, let's just start with that. It feels like the most um, penetrating and like, yeah.
0: I love that you approach this question by first bringing up themes and different themes that are present in your life. Can you give me an overview of some of the sort of chapters that have happened in your Mm -hmm. life and uh, different communities that you've been connected to?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's really funny. A funny eclectic mix of things. Um, So I went to Caltech for college and studied biology thought I would become a scientist. (laughs) Um, Actually tried doing science and was like, it was like, you know, in a dank basement with the postdocs looking miserable (laughs) and like, um, yeah, it's just not, it's just, you have to be so dedicated to like actually go through with an academic career. I did not have that in me. So abandoned that idea after college. And um, my my obsession at the time was Magic the Gathering, the card game. And uh, I was, uh, I moved to New York to be with my boyfriend of the time. And I started showing up to like the local big card store with the tournaments and then I started like going to events like hopping into cars one time we drove like just 18 hours across the United States to go to some tournament in like a cr- like a full car with like five people and I would sleep on the floors of hotel rooms and just be traveling all the time to these events and competing and um, eventually that I started building a brand and getting recognition and writing a blog and this was my Twitter, this was my Twitter obsessed time. Hmm. This was like 2010 um now everyone's into Twitter but like <laughs> I like went through that Twitter phase a while back so like I don't even I don't even want to go back into Twitter, Twitter land you guys have fun but um um you know i treated everything like a game back then i just thought of life as like a game and i was just supposed to win (laughs) um and eventually i got a job uh at a you know one of the bigger website slash card sellers doing copy editing and editing for their articles. And so I moved to Virginia to do that and, um, got fired from that job <laughs> and then spent a while in Madison, Wisconsin, kind of dragging my feet, being kind of depressed. And then, um, Yeah. So the boyfriend that I had been dating in New York, we broke up. But then we started talking again and then while I was in Madison and we were just like chatting it became sort of clear that he was going through like some weird mental breakdown. And so I flew to where he was in Seattle to try to help and he was he went through like a full psychotic break and so I tried to help him out wasn't doing very well helping him out um, <laughs> that was like a big moment for me and sort of realizing like wow I I really need to grow up in order to be able to help people that I care about and it kind of threw me into that but um, he went through a horrible time um, in Seattle I picked up how to program from a coding boot camp, and then I just like stayed in Seattle, worked um, at various tech companies doing iOS development for a few years. And around this time, I also you could say was kind of gaming okay, Cupid <laughs> um, and meeting people that way and one of the people I met was running a meetup on effective altruism and rationality. And that was the first time I like entered that. I knew about rationality and less wrong and stuff before, but my attitude towards it was like, that's weird and dumb. (laughs) I didn't really care for it, but this entry point, uh, was different. There's a different vibe. And so the first meetup I went to was actually on existential risk. And that's kind of the first place I really heard the concept um, talked about. And they just laid it all out. You're like, these are all the X risks we're facing. <laughs> um, and so I started getting involved in that community while living in Seattle and discovered the Center for Applied Rationality and the workshops and flew to go to those. And after the first one, I was like, I was really in I was I started volunteering. And eventually I would move to Berkeley to work for them. And became very ingrained in that community, the Bay Area rationalists and EAs. Um, very formative in a way very formative um and then like and then after i left i sort of unformed all of a lot of the things i picked up from there and uh, i appreciate i think it was like a really valuable process to like pick up that whole worldview and wear it fully for a time and then like leave and then like on like just like scrape off like a lot of the stuff um and um so after yeah so after that I went to maple and um that's like now now that's my now that's the thing that I'm kind of wearing and but also like simultaneously like still scraping off you know, is this whole path, the whole Buddhist thing, the whole enlightenment game is just like it's all about scraping away, you know, it's not really about like grabbing onto like a worldview and then like wearing it and like trying to find safety in that it's it's like you find safety by removing. Like all the fog off of your glasses, all the fog—it's like you have to clear anything that doesn't, anything that like you can remove. You just know. Well, that wasn't (laughs) like if it can be removed. That's not like the the truth in a way. It's not like the deepest, truest thing. If it can just be like adjusted. And then like it falls off. So that's kind of just the practice. That's kind of the way I've been living.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: What inspired you or drew you to Magic the Gathering? Like what was compelling about that for you at that chapter of your life? Oh my
1: gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh, this is such a big, oh, geez. Um, it's like, so my beginnings are so tragic. I just mm-hmm. feel kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to like make it sound like I'm pitying myself or something. That's it's, <laughs> it's like such a hard beginning, but like, for I mean, to be honest, just to, for a long time, I just like didn't have any reason to live, man. I just like didn't have anything. I didn't know what, I, didn't, I just didn't have anything for life. I just didn't have any motive to live. Uh, I was scraping by uh, basically just doing things I was told. And the only <clears throat> sort of place where my ego could find like leverage was in competition and doing good at things like better than other people at things or like smarter than other people. um, But like also it had to be like at the right challenge level, because if it was too hard, I would feel like a failure. And like, I did, was not very good at learning from mistakes or like learning from failure. So <laughs> magic was like that perfect middle, just like that, in the Venn diagram of things, just like I, it's like challenging enough that it's fun and easy enough that I can feel like I'm actually good at it and learning and like improving. And it also is competitive, like a one on one competitive arena. And so I just, it just became like, it just became, it, came, it became an obsession um because kind of just because i had nothing else really going on um so it became the one thing and it actually did help me like 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 the trajectory the trajectory out of depression came through magic so i'm very grateful to it
0: what was it like playing it like being good at it what does that involve what What's the experience of it like
1: um, what's really nice about like a physical card game versus like a video game is that you have to go out and be with other people to play it. So the actual dynamic of like, I think a lot of people don't get this about magic. It's a very social sport. Like you have to go out there and you actually have to make friends because the cards are expensive and you need to like be able to borrow <laughs> like you need to talk about strategy because it's like hard and then you have to borrow the cards and you need rides from people to like get to tournaments and like it's just like um, yeah it's like a game that forced me to make friends with people (laughs) and also um, another thing I enjoyed about it is just like that feeling of like being an innocuous looking girl in a room full of guys who like, look at you and think you're probably just not good at the game. And then just like, just like destroying their their views. (laughs) And so like, it was fun to like build up a reputation and then actually like start getting respect from people. Um. yeah that part was yeah and like mo- a lot of that game for me was not even about the like matches like the actual thing that happens when you just sit down and like actually sling cards but it was about the culture it was like about the people. It was about the the meta game, you could say, like the strategy, like above the tactical level. Um, I really love that stuff.
0: Do you have any stories from that time that are uh, memorable?
1: Well. So this thing about going to tournaments every weekend, they're all over the place, but you always see like the main competitors at every one because you kind of have to like rack up points and stuff. So it's like fun. It's like every weekend you just get to see your friends and like do fun things together. So there's a particular group of us, four of us, and we became like um, the breakfast crew or something. Like there's this, tradition or ritual of like us like ditching everybody else and like going and getting food together and like there's I don't know there's like a lot of just fun times with like me and that particular crew um
2: (laughs) um yeah, I don't know. Think about it.
0: You said it helped you to make friends. Uh, were there any other virtues that you feel like you cultivated in that chapter of your life?
1: Hmm. Um, there's a lot that I learned about how people work and how um, strategy works. Um, I also learned a lot about team like cooperation the how to do it and how important it can be to cooperate and how necessary it is for like really high level play. If you're really going to do something hard, it's better to do it with like um, in teams with people who are dedicated to the same thing. Um, So I watched a lot of that. Um, Yeah, nothing else immediately comes to mind.
0: What did you learn about people?
2: Hmm.
1: Thinking about it, I feel very fond. I feel very fond of people and their little quibbles and their reactions and their foibles and stuff. Like, because you learn a lot about people when you see them lose and you learn a lot about people when you see them win. Um, And you learn a lot about people just in how they approach like a game. I would say that One significant learning is that um, when it comes to winning or actually like setting out to like accomplish something, the thing that gets in the way is not a person's skill level so much. It's definitely a lot more to do with their psychology and how they approach the thing at all. Um, So a lot of people just aren't playing to win is a way of putting it. There's a lot of other motives that people come into a tournament with that have nothing to do with winning. Um, (laughs) They might be there just to not lose or like not feel the hardship or difficulty of losing a game. Or they may be there to have fun primarily. Um, Or... They may be there as a form of self-expression. There's like a way you can play magic that's like more about the creativity or expressing yourself through selections that you make. Um, You may be there to feel clever. Uh, You may be there to... hmm. Yeah, there's like all these other motives. And... I just learned to sort of like see that in each person um, and just all the little ways that they give away what their actual motivations are.
2: Yeah.
0: What would an example of that be like a way that someone would give away their actual motivation?
1: Mm. Well, um, say instead of playing the, making the move in a, in a match that would actually be optimal for winning, they might be attached to like getting off like a really cool combo, combo. like, like, oh, these cards like really want to interact together and it's going to do this really cool, fun thing. Even though I could just like win the battle right now by like just shooting you with a lightning bolt or something. They're, they're like more into this other thing that they can make happen. Um, but this is like a fairly, uh, more of one of one of the more obvious examples, like most competitors aren't going to do that, but like, that's just, there's subtle, there's subtle forms of it, subtle forms of self-sabotage that people do in a, in a match. Um, and it's so interesting just to watch like every little subtle decision that they make, including like not noticing something that like would have won them the match or um, not taking the risk that would have actually won them the match or like becoming mindless. Like it's like weird where the mind just kind of blips sometimes to make it so you don't notice the thing you're really like in some sense wanted to notice, but clearly you didn't really want to notice it because your mind just like almost deliberately blipped that moment out from your awareness. And then, (laughs) yeah. So just noticing those things and just being like, wow, there's more going on here than this game on the table right now. It was a whole psychological dance happening in every match.
0: You said that at that point in your life, uh, you saw life as a game and the goal was to win. Like, what would it mean at that time to you to win? What was winning?
1: Huh. That's a good question. Hmm. I probably didn't have that clear a sense of it. I um I just want to name like that that whole worldview I now see as like quite delusional, and so it's like a little hard for me to like try to give it the credit that it probably deserves, but like yeah. it's, but like, for me, winning would mean like, say, increasing my optionality. Like giving my, like making sure that like my options are more open, more plentiful, uh, making sure that I have more resources in terms of like social capital, for instance, like having a good reputation or knowing important people who could get me into like cool events or something. Um, Yeah. I, think I cared a lot about my reputation having a good reputation
0: so optionality and having a good reputation
2: yeah
0: hmm. i'm interested in this chapter of your life for, for two reasons one is just i've never had that experience it's like oh that's that's different <laughs> curious about that uh and then also yeah, really interested in the fact that, you know, you said you didn't have anything to live before, live for, and like this got you out of that. And so, um, I don't know, at least over here hearing about it, um, you know, you said your beginnings were kind of like tragic, and it's like, I see that, and also, it's like, wow, what a like, almost that Magic the Gathering was kind of like uh, this, like, compassionate, manifestation of avalokiteshvara for you that like helped you get out of suffering and uh it's like that's what it you needed was, it was like was. willing to manifest that in the form that you needed
1: yeah <laughs> i totally needed it it was a godsend for me to discover it in college mm. Oof. i don't know what i would have done without it because mm. i had nothing <laughs> mm.
2: <laughs> Yeah.
0: What when you encountered effective altruism and rationality, you know, and in a way that was actually compelling to you and you were at this meetup and so on and started going to CFAR, what what was compelling when it did kind of click for you and you were like, Oh, I'm interested in learning more about this and participating in this community? What was compelling there for you?
1: Honestly that's still very confusing to me. I don't know. It was like I just started going to these meetups and we do things like eat so one time there was a meetup where we like like prepared like crickets and mealworms to eat mm. ourselves and eat. this is um this is part of their deal of like exploring alternatives to like factory farmed animals i'd say alternative forms of protein and i think that was the deal with that but yeah we do weird things like that (laughs) and they do this other weird thing where they celebrated the the winter solstice with like their own kind of made-up holiday called secular solstice and i would help prepare this like thing and we would have like like um, music and dancing and like a whole uh, service with like hymns, like their own, like they created their own hymns for this. And um, they were trying to create rituals, you know, they're trying to create something to be their sacred ritual. Maybe it was just cause it was like, kind of like church, a little bit. It wasn't, it was just like gathering. It was just like regular gatherings. And people would just talk about stuff. I don't even remember what they'd talk about. I don't even know. Did I enjoy them? I don't even know. I don't even know. But um, this particular group of people in Seattle, there is a way that I clicked with the people in a way. Um, and ultimately I'd say it was like, somehow like finding my people, something about them, that group of people, it's their, the way their minds work is just very easy for me to relate to even more so than the people here at Maple. There's just something about their intellect and curiosity and seriousness seriousness with which they take like their views and like seriously consider like existential risk like what what if that's like like the real deal like what if what if that's like really the maybe the most important thing ever you know Um, and there is a sincerity in the in the community and um it really made them willing to talk about things that are hard to talk about or face things that are hard to face and at the same time just with this intellectual vibrancy and curiosity and nitpickiness which i value the nitpickiness of like someone with a very precise mind it's like no you did you mean to say that word versus this word word? Like they conceptually invoke, evoke different things. You know, they have different implications. And so like, be careful about which words you use. And um, it matters what you do with your mind. Yeah. So I don't know how much I took the ideas or the ideologies as like there's a way that I put them on but I don't know if that was the main compelling thing about it for me it was probably more to do with the people
2: you got
0: pretty involved I mean you know you were helping at CIFAR and you no, know, I believe uh, wrote a number of like posts on Less Wrong, as a
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. neck of the internet I don't go to very often. But I do know you have a profile there, and I've read a few of your posts. Uh, <laughs> so,
1: yeah, I still check Less Wrong. Mm-hmm. I still, I still try to comment, but like, I am so outside of their Overton window in terms of my worldview at this point that it's like really hard to talk to any of them anymore (laughs) Uh, it's awkward
0: (laughs) how would you describe their worldview and, and your worldview and the discrepancy there
1: yeah I mean here at Maple we would describe that worldview as like very staunchly materialist humanist there's the whole secular solstice holiday is a celebration of the human human as the highest source of good and meaning in the universe humans as the source of light in the universe. And so they're really into the idea of spreading that light throughout the universe by having humanity, quote unquote, conquer the stars. They want to go out there and like capture every, galactic planetary system that they can by spreading humans throughout the the universe. And um, so they celebrate the achievements of humanity, um, in particular, the achievements of human technology, such as landing on the moon or eradicating polio um, you know, various diseases. So it's a celebration of that aspect of the human that can conquer nature. So particularly intelligence, human intelligence, like the things that we've been able to achieve with our, by figuring things out, um, creating accurate maps of the world. And so another big thing is like, they believe death, physical death is just like the worst thing because they're also materialists. So they believe that, you know, once this life is done, it's just done. Like you're just like, like everything you were or offered or, everything about you is just gone and it's permanently gone there's nothing left in a way and so to them it's just the worst absolute worst thing and um, it's actually painful to see how many people treat death for them it's painful to see how many people just treat death as like this natural like oh like it's natural so it's it's good it's like you know it's going to happen like accept it and so for them, there's this deep conviction to fight death, to conquer death, to to defeat death in their worldview. Um so that's kind of more the rationalist side, maybe. There's also this whole effective altruist side about what it means to be a good person and do good in the world. You can just look that up on their website or something it's not i don't really feel like talking about it Um, but you could say that there's sort of consequentialist or utilitarian roots to their views and it's also very baked in materialist humanist views as well and so their whole thing right now is probably there's probably a lot going on there around ai risk as like the major cause to work on right now. Big push there, but um, yeah, I see them as pretty confused about like the nature of this life, the nature of reality, the nature of minds, the nature of the human, like what all this is for, like to like a lot of their ways of thinking about it are so baked in these assumptions that um I can't like it's just like, ah I don't I don't see how they're gonna get out of the like scraps that they've already set for themselves by sticking so hard to like a particular worldview about it. Hmm. But, you know, it's also there's an ad, There's something to admire about how seriously they really take. Like a lot of people are just kind of indoctrinated into materialist humanist views, but like don't take them to the conclusion of those views. Like they just wear them to a certain level that it's convenient and like they can use the views to like live a kind of normal life without having to encounter too many bumps in their road. But this group of people just like took those views on and rode them to like their natural conclusions. And they're actually living according to those views, which results in like really wacky, crazy behavior in some cases, like really crazy stuff. And and then it's almost like um, dystopic there's certain dystopian dystopias that they're actually like willing to play out in their lives, real lives that you kind of have to admire um, as just like a demonstration of like, this is what happens when you actually play out these views.
0: And what about your worldview? How do you see things?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big that's a big question, Tashin. Just opened up a big question there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I'd say one feature of the way that I use views. I'd say that the aim for me is not to be used by views but to use views. And so there's ways that I pick up different frames and use them for different circumstances. Um so kind of depending on the circumstance you might ask me that question and I might have different answers. Mm. Um
0: Well, it's funny because part of where this question is coming from is imagining, you know, uh, a stereotypical rationalist listening to this. Maybe they know about you and they're curious about you and they hear you Mm -hmm. describing their worldview as like confused and it leads to a lot of very strange behavior. And they'd be like, well, you seem pretty confused and you seem to have a lot of strange behavior. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, um, what is it? I don't, I don't think I have quite have words for this, but like, um hmm. well i you know i try to hold these conversations very charitably and i'm also very sympathetic to how you you know you live your life and choices that you've made um but i want to yeah i want to understand how you see things kind of on your own terms and yeah, you know, maybe we can circle back to this but uh, perhaps one way to get at it would be how how did you end up getting interested in joining maple and uh, leaving you know sort of the rationality life that you built for yourself and going to do this monastic training is it's um, I, it seems over here, like an even bigger jump than the one from magic, the gathering to like the rationalist, you know, and Mm -hmm. then like iOS developments, like, Oh, that's, that was like a jump. And then, you know, competitive magic player to like iOS developer rationality, but like rationality to monastery, big jump. So how did that happening?
1: And I want to say like, it was actually hard to say goodbye to those people because i really still feel deeply dedicated to that community but also just like the friends i've made in that community i just feel so tied to them dedicated to them and so um it's hard for it's been hard for me to be apart from them and i keep yearning to like go back in a way um know what happened i do know that i burnt i burnt out of my cfar position like at some point i just couldn't get up the will to like keep going and doing the work um but that happens to me regularly with like every endeavor (laughs) like historically that's just my deal um but i guess i left cfar and I guess after that it was just like an open-ended huge question of like what am i doing next um and i think maple was the only live like real thread that i'd found um thanks to someone our mutual friend joshin coming to the cfar office and giving a talk and inviting us to visit maple And I, yeah, I could tell there was something special about that, about this place, Maple, about the community, about the space, about something about them. And it also felt like I could, I, I could be of use, could be of benefit there. But before coming to Maple, I didn't know anything about Buddhism, really, or I didn't want to, I didn't think about enlightenment or awakening or, I just thought like meditation, that might be a good idea. <laughs> There's something about it. Um, and I knew that whatever I'd been doing was not working, just it still wasn't working as much as I wanted to be friends with the people in the rationalist community that I deeply felt devoted to, my whole deal was just like so unreliable, so untrustworthy, so undependable. Um, I just like, it was useless for me to try and stay and make it work. And so I was grasping at straws in terms of what to do. And meditation was just like, I didn't have like a lot of optimism about meditation, but it was like something (laughs) like maybe in theory, it seems plausible that meditation might be able to train the mind to be, to become more dependable and reliable. I could see that in theory, how that might work. So yeah, let's give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um yeah, and then obviously like the whole worldview shift came in like waves from being here and of course there's a lot of things that my teacher saw you said that made sense. Um maybe not initially, initially I was, was very skeptical and angry and disagreeable i'm sure but um but you know regardless of what he said by actually doing the practice actually going deep and like accessing you know just like little bits of insight just like unpeeling certain layers and like letting certain deeper intuitions come through about what's going on and you know I've done a total of 90 days in solitary retreat here in like a cabin where you know I'm not talking to anybody and I'm just meditating the whole time for like months at a time weeks at a time I've done that And also, of course, we do meditation retreats almost every month that are like a seven-day retreat and sometimes longer. And so just the insight and learning... I mean, like, every, like, just like the whole way I view everything is just completely different. (laughs) And now I treat everything that happens as a spiritual happening. Like, every time I stub my toe or like, um, if I like happen to drop a glass, or um, someone says something to me that makes me feel bad, or um, I look out and there's a rainbow. It's like everything has something meaningful. Like, I don't have to make a, bu- a big story about anything that happens, but there's a sense of, like, oh, maybe that was a message. Like, oh, maybe, you know, if I stub my toe, maybe, like, oh, in what way was I not paying attention? In what way was I heedless? In what way? What was I doing with my mind? How am I relating to that moment? Do I not like that I stubbed my toe? Am I okay with the fact that it hurts a little bit or like everything, like every motion I make with my mind like influences this whole reality. It's like everything. Um And there's another orientation that I see a lot of people do that tries to instead mentally justify things that happen away. They just try to write it off. Um, And as soon as the mind comes up with some sort of semi-satisfactory explanation of something, that's like their excuse to like stop thinking about it. And I think like on some level to stop feeling things about it, to to sort of like disconnect from it, from the event in some way they're like using their mind as a way to disconnect from reality. And, um, Yeah, I'd say that feels sad to me that people do that so much. Um, So I'd say that the path for me is developing the capacity to be with more of reality. And that means being able to like... um, It's almost like gaining your sea legs. It's like the more tumultuous the waves, you know, the harder it is to stay grounded, but like you still want to develop the capacity to, at least I want to develop the capacity to ride really tumultuous waves or even really not tumultuous waves, small, small waves that may just be like incessantly uncomfortable to some part of me or big emotional tides or big tragedies or big happiness or whatever big energies. But to me, I'm always wanting to move in the direction of greater capacity to be with more with like really close, really closely be with those things. So like an intimate way of relating to all happenings, all energies, all episodes, Um, all feelings, all thoughts, all sensations, all perceptions, and uh, be able to stay wise and loving through as much as possible. Um, And wise here means, you could say, just clearly perceiving what's actually happening all the time and not flinching away from things and not tightly holding on to things and then like using them to block my vision.
0: What has happened for you through meditation and doing all these retreats and solitary practice like what are some of the shifts that you've noticed or things that you've investigated in meditation
1: A lot of the shifts are hard to describe because they're lived or like they're in my body. Um, But that's one of the big shifts. It's just like how much more in the body I am than before, how much I'm able to like, I don't know. How how do you describe this for people who don't I mean, yeah. I guess, I guess before I was like up here in my head, and, and when I meditated, I would be looking down to meditate and like looking down at my breath, um, and in a way observing something that felt external to me. And but now somehow, like the me that was like kind of locked up here is able to just like spread down through the rest of me so the sense of me um, is more like throughout my body um and there's a way that that's more peaceful It's less, it, feel, it feels less trapped. Um, it's less tension. And there are still times when I think a lot and then tension just like builds up in my head. And I don't know if I, some part of me is like hesitant to say this too. I don't know why, but I can also like take the sense of me and actually um, put it into perception and just like rest there. It's just so it's just so weird that you can just do that. Like you can just take your sense of self, the sense of like the meanness, and you just like move it around. Hmm. (laughs) And it can just inhabit like your head, or it can inhabit your stomach, or it can inhabit your whole body, or it can inhabit like your your visual field, or like in between things, or like (laughs) it's just like what hmm. and different ones are like different levels of peaceful and like relaxed and like even like joyful like like i can i when i rest in perception sometimes it just like brings a smile to my face <laughs> he was happier he was just just kind of happy Um, and I'm like right now I'm just like getting pinged by my like um, stereotype of a rationalist being like that's like fake because you're like making it you're like making it happy rather than it being like natural or like rather than it being justified you should be happy for like reasons shouldn't be happy for like no reason. <laughs> but um, um well, this is so true. It's like I don't know how to explain this at all. It's just like um I'm happier when I'm living more in accord with what's true. True and good. And um, to me, that is ev- like clearly evidenced from empirical testing, you could say. It is very testable. <laughs> you just like yeah or you going to say something
2: please please continue
1: um yeah so you know this well probably but just the way you make choices on a day-to-day level just ethically morally whether you take a good action <clears throat> or you take a not good action like just like those decisions empirically you can watch the effect on your mind on your consciousness on your perception on your feelings you know and you can just empirically test what happens and just notice how big of a change I mean, it's just, the impact is actually huge. Um, Yeah, and it just, is just a strong link between happiness doing good and living according to what's true those things are strongly linked together
0: what's what's motivated you during your time of training like why do you meditate or why do you continue to train what keeps you
1: going a lot of what keeps, a lot of why I feel very compelled to train, um, one of it's relational. It's just like, how do I show up for friends? But another is the X risk piece. It is the awareness of where humanity is right now, the kind of precariousness of, like, we're really at the precipice. Um, as this is like, I'm just naming book titles. The Precipice is like something Toby Ord wrote and the Time Between Worlds is something Zach Stein wrote, but like, we're like at that point in our history. Um, And I'm deeply concerned for the amount of chaos and distress that humanity is about, well, is currently facing, but like, it's going to get worse. I think it's going to get way worse before it gets better. And I'm deeply concerned about that. Um,
2: Yeah.
0: Is there a difference in the way that you hold the prospect of existential risk now and with your current worldview than the way that you held it previously as a rationalist?
1: You know, what's so funny is that as a rationalist, there's a part of me that I just, it just didn't take it seriously. Or like, it didn't really, I was kind of a nihilist before. (laughs) That's the truth of it. I didn't really get deeply viscerally the difference between a universe with life and a universe without life. To me, I looked at those two things from like a kind of God view, like an object, like an attempted objective, third party perspective. And I was like, these are like basically the same. Um. That's how just deeply unfeeling and like Alice over my heart was, <laughs> like, um, uh, I just didn't know how to care. That said, I still acted, um for the cause, like still worked at an organization that was working on AI risk. And I still tried to help that movement. I just couldn't find the deeper motivation inside of me. That was for many of the other people really compelling. And they were like, there's a certain level of like willingness to like risk their life in that community willingness to take deep responsibility for this in that community. Um, And I didn't have that. But now, now I would say I do have access to that level of care and commitment.
2: Yeah.
0: What gave you that? Access.
1: Um, a lot of work, I'd say. A lot of work, Tashin. Mm. Just uh meditation, but also like trauma healing stuff, all the different modalities that we use here. Opening up my heart in like in interpersonal ways is huge just to be able to connect to all things is like that direct interpersonal contact with other humans and being willing to let go of views and let go of traumas and working on that, working on relationships, working on my mind.
2: In
0: our correspondence before this conversation, you sent me something about how you feel that the spiritual path is uh, divided into three broad moves. You said trauma healing, Eros, and relinquishment. Um, can you talk about those moves and how you understand them?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I'd say that um, trauma healing was a big part of my early early stage work because it's so hard to do any of the other work. If like, there's really loud, deep, like net, na- like nagging traumas in the system. Um, So I'd say like that work for me started like 2015 really doing, going to therapy and learning about, focusing by using Genlin or internal family systems and doing CIFAR workshops. Circling actually did help also. Um, so I think like for many people, I mean, not everyone needs to do much trauma healing. I've met plenty of people who don't seem, that doesn't seem like a much, much of a blocker for them, but for people who it is blocking the spiritual path, it just seems like you got to, maybe spend some years working on that stuff before you can really engage in like the deeper, more, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say advanced, but like there's like deeper work to do um, after the trauma healing stuff. It opens up, it opens up stuff. So I gave that its own category just in case people need to spend a lot of time in that. And it's okay if people do need to spend a lot of time in that. And then these two other things that really have more opened up for me more recently, I'd say is Eros, work on Eros and work on relinquishment. I use the term Eros. Um, it's coming from a couple places. One is Rob Berbea a spiritual teacher who does this like soul-making practice. I don't really know much at all about Rob bea but I know he talks about this stuff. And then the other place it's coming from is like, um, so friends of mine, namely Zach Stein and his collaborator, Mark Gaffney, are um, working on, a new what they call universal grammar of value. I'm not going to explain that, but they're uh, giving it. They're given. They have this umbrella term called cosmoerotic humanism. I'm not going to explain that either. But the word eros is in cosmoerotic. This like. Um, And there's basically this view that the universe and we as people have these like desires that are like deeper and emergent and like coming from somewhere that is um, beyond just like a personal preference. It's like a deep movement or a symphony towards kind of a unique expression of your being and that the universe is like this place where we can each like offer this unique self-expression following the deep call of this Eros, this Eros, which is like this energy, this like drive, this like yearning, yearning for becoming, yearning for being, um, yearning for expression and creation. So that's been a rough journey for me because uh, I would say that from early on, I just shut that off. I just like, shut that all down. I just like, you know, you can tell if like someone just doesn't have the will to live, like, <laughs> Like, I, I didn't really have, like, a reason to live. That's because my Eros was just, like, trapped in a trap door, like, underneath. I kept it in the basement. Like, I just didn't. It probably leaked out here and there. But, like, and there was Eros for magic, right? There's, like, this yearning or passion in that direction. Um, but I didn't let it out for many things. And it shows up. And that will show up in, like, how you... Um, how you relate to your own sexuality for instance or how you engage in romance um, how you engage in like any intimate connection with any person or with nature or with god or anything Um, that vibrancy that like spark for life that yearning to create you know um, create art or create like a product or create something. So I've just been in the deep work of actually opening that gate that I have had sealed for many decades. I oh, would not say okay. many years, <laughs> um, And I, I would call that a spiritual work. I call that spiritual, a movement towards spiritual wholeness, um, reintegration, actually allowing energy to fill your whole body and move you in the world to actually do something rather than just, you're not just sitting alone under a tree. You're actually using this body, mind, and life to offer something, to create something of yourself and actually magnetize the things that need to come to you to come to you and to receive from like the earth and from others and like actually let that in and then also have that move. And it's just like this whole process of this whole process of like birth and death in action, like you're actually in the play of life. Um, And um, that's the Eros side. The relinquishment side is more of the acknowledgement that, like, yes to all that, the whole play of life. But you also have to acknowledge that it's empty. There's an emptiness To all of that, it's not like inherent on its own side. There isn't like some fixed. It's just not fixed. Like it's, you can't grasp it or grab onto any of it. And it's, I don't know, this this side's like hard to explain. (laughs) Okay, I'll just say that Working on relinquishment is um... concretely the way that I'm training relinquishment is by renouncing things. So Right now, I'm celibate, and I'm also not, um, I've chosen a lifestyle that isn't based on earning income. I have to be given, I'm like surviving on the generosity of others. They feed me, they give me housing. Um, And there are many things about my life that I don't have control over and i did that on purpose you could say i i did ultimately choose all those things but i'm choosing to like give up all those all that control and needs you could say needing to need but the lesson i'm like it's not just it's not like inherently good to like live with less or something. That's not how I see it. It's not necessarily like that's not the end. The, the end is the lesson and I keep learning. I mean, it's, it's extremely valuable lesson of um, well, one is I don't actually need those things. Like, um, learning to be free of, of things that I think I need. But the other lesson is deeper than that. Oh man, words just totally fail to describe to describe this actually. you could say it's just learning about what's beyond birth and death and sort of mundane existence there's like there's a beyond um it's like learning to it's like learning to read between the lines of code in the in the source code of like the universe or something it's like there's something but beyond like the in beyond the lines of the code. Um and the knowledge that comes from looking beyond is uh fills it just I don't I don't like any of these words it fills me with like a deep sense of com- completion <laughs> um But basically um, there's a danger, I think, to only working on eros on the spiritual path. There may also be a danger to only working on relinquishment, which is why I don't, I'm currently not doing only one. I'm I'm, I'm working on, you you could say all three of the things that I named trauma healing eros, and relinquishment it's just like for me I'm taking I'm trying to take the whole package even though it's more confusing this way (laughs) (laughs) it's more confusing it's harder to explain to people what I'm up to and um there is some part of me that's afraid that people will like look at me and think I'm being hypocritical or like not really doing the thing Um, or thinking I'm going about it in like the worst, most convoluted way or something, which might be true. I'll give it to them. I am a convoluted person. Hmm. So I come up with convoluted frames for how to do things, but uh,
0: yeah. What do you think the danger is of just focusing on one of those three things?
2: Mm.
1: Um, there's a risk of if you focus wholly on Eros without really seeing um, the emptiness of all things, of all phenomena, or without kind of realizing like the beyond, beyond what's here, You could you could fall into just like really buying into like... like, just what's happening on a mundane level. I mean, let me try to actually, like, consider real examples. Hmm. Actually, I don't really know how to talk about that.
0: This danger in particular or the dangers in general?
1: Okay. I think I don't know how to talk about the danger of only focusing on Eros. I think I'm more aware of the danger of only focusing on relinquishment on a personal
0: level. The one I'm most at risk of is Eros. So. <laughs> Alas. You, oh,
1: like you're more on the other side?
0: Yeah. Like I, well, I think I am most falling Eros right now of those three. So
1: yeah I don't know how to talk about you can't this.
0: describe my medicine doctor I'm sorry it's good yeah, the the solution is just to practice and uh let go yeah. and look at emptiness yeah. and the three characteristics and stuff so
1: exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. um for me not working on eros um. Man, you kind of need some sense of self, you know, kind of just, it's actually kind of important if you're going to like really dive into some serious, spiritual, unclear water, like the choppier, the water you're entering, it's really helpful to have a sturdier boat to be on. And I think a lot of people, you know, without a strong sense of like, what's true in my being, you know, like that that place of like firm knowing, inner knowing of like, um, what is the energy in me driving me towards or away from, or like, what is the body saying right now? Not having that, I mean, you can get into a lot of trouble getting swayed this way and that way by all kinds of spiritual teachings that are contradictory or, you know, compelling for the wrong reasons to you. Like, like you might be following some spiritual teacher, um, because that's what you think you should do for whatever reason. But, um, I don't know. That just seems to get people into trouble. Yeah. It's good to just learn how to be your best ally. And learn how to. Really stay grounded in your own sense of reality and what's true. And, um, and then move and then like learn to give that, give some of that up, learn to relinquish or surrender into something greater than yourself. Um, from that place. But. Oof, a lot of people are super disembodied, not in touch with their inner knowing or um, their embodiment. And so uh, it's like, rough um a lot of people are actually deeply terrified of their own life force energy and like they kind of hate it when they see it on other people like other people expressing it and they just want to like cut that down because they themselves don't feel like allowed to live according to their own life force or what their eros is calling for and if there's that kind of hatred of their own life force um, that can also cause a lot of problems. And and like, you know, I just want to also be reassuring that if that's true, like obviously that's true for me to a deep extent and it's like basically fine. Like it's okay to be in that position and um, It's possible to work through that, so.
0: I'm remembering your story about um, going to help your ex-boyfriend after his psychotic break and how you said you just kind of realized you had to grow up and in order to help the people in your life. And um, through the course of our friendship and the time that we've known each other, you've struck me as someone who... uh, this is just my perception of you over here, but uh, that you know how to show up for someone and uh, can really be there for someone and in a a variety of circumstances. You know, Um, uh, I remember actually, you know, just recently, of course, my mom passed and you and some other folks from Maple came to be with me and during that time and my family and uh, some folks that my mom was connected to. And I remember, before I knew who was gonna come, I was like, "Oh, I hope Ren comes." <laughs> you know, like it would be a a great uh, it would put me at ease to know that you were coming. And of course, I was like, "Oh, whoever comes will be great." But um, I was happy that you came. And uh, yeah, I've seen I've witnessed you being there for me and and for other people, and being a grounding presence, and also someone who who yeah knows how to show up in those circumstances, like in a variety of circumstances you know that was one that I was in but other people have been in other circumstances I'm sure you know different people that you've helped in, in a variety of situations and I guess I'm curious I mean I, I at least for myself I think of this as like a art that is continually cultivated so I don't want to like put you on some pedestal of like oh you figured everything out with this but like uh, to me it seems like oh you, you must have learned something since you had that chapter earlier in your life where you helped your ex-boyfriend. And um I wonder what are some of the things that you've learned about helping people and showing up for them at difficult chapters of their lives?
1: You're asking this in the context of like, what have I learned just like over the course of my life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or,
0: and or just like uh, both for you personally, but also how does one, anyone, me, someone else show up for someone? Like that's, that's the reason I'm asking is because periodically, you know, we all have to show up for people in our lives that we love and that are going through difficult times. And we also have to receive that love ourselves. And so I'm curious, I want to get, I'm asking because I want to get better at that art of showing up for people. And I see you as someone that's skilled in that. So I I do want to ask about your personal experience of it, but also just what you think about it, how
2: to show up for people.
1: Yeah, this really shows up when like death is on the table or insanity. Death and insanity are like the big places where you really are tested. Like, are you capable of showing up? Um, And my recent experience with my grandfather passing away, I really saw a little bit of that, just watching my family and how they interacted with my grandfather as he lay there on a hospital bed, not able to communicate. Like he was just past the point where he could communicate and um, in that sort of state, people project because they don't know what else to do. Um, They make up stories. They uh, make up things about the person Um, what they want or, you know, what you should do for them or all kinds of things. And it's true also for people who are going through a psychotic break because you can't communicate with them either. Like they're just, they're no longer themselves. They're kind of gone. And so you, you can't help, but your mind just really wants to know, like, what do they want? What do they What am I supposed to do here? Um I can't help but try to project that on.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm feeling, like, heartbroken. It is, like, heartbreakingly sad from so many angles to not know how to care for someone you deeply love. But not only that, to do, in some cases, the exact opposite thing or like close to just like the thing that absolutely isn't needed or like isn't appropriate. Because you're living in a diluted sense of reality that your mind is trying to create um, out of a survival mechanism. Um, Or because you just that's just how it's been your whole life and you don't know another way. And so you your mind just can't help but like create all these stories or fantasies of what's happening and you have to live according to your views. Like what else do you really have? And honestly, I don't know for most people how to get people to the point where they're willing to like change that about themselves without them going through some kind of major tragedy um, where they're confronted, like directly confronted by the inadequacy of like their whole way of living up until that moment. Uh, And for me, it was that, that experience with my ex where he had a psychotic break and um, being directly confronted by uh, the inadequacy of my whole worldview as I helplessly tried to like do things that seem like I tried to be supportive, but like it was, it was just like, failure after failure and he went through awful things um, including like getting arrested and being locked up even though he was totally confused and not clear what was happening to him or where he was or why and other terrible things happened to him. Um, yeah, if there's a way to get people to this place of that kind of being confronted without having to go through that first, that's what I would wish for. Um, maybe just, you know, to the extent that you've experienced this and that I've experienced this, just sharing our own experiences of this might be helpful to really like lock in that, like, Hey, your loved ones are going to die. And you're currently not equipped to be with them through that process. And like, you actually need to train for that moment. You actually need to prepare for that moment. It's not going to be like automatic. You don't have the, like your natural instincts at that moment aren't going to be magically perfect and And in fact, may in fact be like quite ugly. The natural instincts may be quite delusional or unhelpful. Selfish, actually. Just like really wrapped up in yourself. And, uh, yeah, I just I, like just really getting that message across to to people. Um, yeah, because it's so tragic and so heartbreaking um, to have the time when you need that mind to be clear and loving like like literally it's your parents like on the deathbed or like in a psych ward or like your 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 spouse or your children or something and then to not be able to show up at that point that's not the time you want to train for that (laughs) that's not the time you want to be practicing that's not the arena that you want to be like trial and erroring to gain experience points. You need to do that before. Um, and so, just always, we just, maybe just we just have to remember. Um, in terms of what to actually do to train for that, I mean. I mean, there are are lots of different ways to practice in smaller ways that are less um, final. Helping out a neighbor, helping out a sick friend who's ill. Um, Helping raise children finding those opportunities to like be with someone where you can't communicate with them as like two normal, healthy adults. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Really
0: appreciate you sharing your sense of that and speaking to it and about your own experience and in general and it's really a gift to hear about it so thank you is there anything else that you'd like to talk more about or uh, have a discussion about
1: um there's nothing coming from me um yeah i mean i'd love to a lot of this has been kind of like you asking me questions but i'd love to open it up to a more like two-way dialogue
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but we don't have to i don't know (laughs) What are you what are you feeling right now?
0: Mm, I feel grateful. I feel grateful just in general to have these conversations, but um this last bit of our conversation is sitting with me and uh I also feel um what's the word? It's not quite overwhelmed, but overwhelmed like a five intensity something like a two or a three and and um also a slightly different axis but of uh like specifically i'm remembering aspects of my mother's passing that um i feel like i haven't really come to terms with yet or grieved Mm -hmm. because it's been hard to sit with and look at and uh uh almost the, the metaphor that was coming to mind as i heard you speak is I feel like I did a lot of that training, especially when I was at the monastery and that that was invaluable to me in that chapter and showing up for my mom and for my family. And I just, uh, it's not, this is such a terrible metaphor, but I almost like thinking of like grades and like it's like, oh like I I definitely did better than I would have in an alternate universe where I hadn't trained. And it's like I could see how that was really useful and like kind of set me up for success to show up much better than I would have otherwise. And it just like wasn't good enough and uh feels like, you know, C plus B minus kind of territory. It's like, okay, I didn't fail. (laughs) I was set up to like not fail. And I like made an honest effort and I think really smoothed that process for my mother and for my family in some ways that um honestly i don't really see anyone else i showing up to do and like the 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 medical systems are so concerned with um mm-hmm. the body and the physical body and then after someone passes they're very concerned with like ritual around those that live and not so much around the the person that mm-hmm. died and so I feel like I was showing up to deal with everything that's not included with either the physical body or like Mm -hmm. those that live. And, um, you know, my mother for me continues, you know, I believe in reincarnation and so showing up for that, but also a lot of the uh, subtle interpersonal energetic dynamics or like, yeah, just, just being there with my mom as a person in her dying process, like, just how she was emotionally and uh, what she was experiencing psychologically and just just being there with her and really witnessing her and trying to help her. And um, I think um, I see the ways in which that was both, I'm proud of the ways I showed up and that I felt prepared for that and in, in important ways that I didn't see the medical system or, or my family quite stepping up to the task for and also uh, see ways in which I, I could have done better or uh, showed up more for her and I, I feel regret about that. And uh I don't it's almost like a grief that I don't I haven't I haven't even really been ready to look at, honestly yet, like that aspect of it. And now that I, it feels like this conversation is like, yep, time to look at that. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't quite know how to move through it. Um, um, and it doesn't uh, doesn't really feel like something I want to talk about publicly other than to acknowledge that it's there, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just because I haven't, mostly because I haven't processed it for myself yet. And uh, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not even that, it's not like how to put it, I I was like, yeah, I don't even actually know how, like, was this, um, like a, like a few moments where they, you know, it's just like, were they just like a few moments and it's not a big deal and like, probably my mom doesn't care and she just loves me and it's all good or, or were they, uh, extremely significant and I just like, didn't, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell and, um, yeah, I think something I need to sit with and and all in this life, but also, you know, I I don't know. I think I imagine it's something that would come up in like a life review stage at in your life. Like this moment, like mm-hmm. let's look back at that and what, what happened and mm-hmm. it's not it's not like, oh um I'm just being evasive because I haven't processed it fully. I I don't think it's like, you know. Yeah, This isn't, this isn't like I'm a not... Hollywood film where I like <laughs> secretly murdered her or something. Uh, it's just like how this, like <laughs> the emotional tone and presence in which I showed up. It's like, Oh, was there something there that I need to learn from?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not imagining any big moment. I'm imagining it's quite subtle.
0: Yeah. Very subtle. Very subtle. That's exactly right. So um, that's right.
1: So, yeah. And I have, I have questions like this about the way I was, With my grandfather, too. Mm.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm. Um, I have a lot of acceptance for the way you, like everything you did.
0: Me too. And I, I think that's why I haven't actually <laughs> looked at it too much. And like, I, so I think some part of me knows that it's okay and all is well. And some part of me knows there's something there to learn and grow through and uh, grieve. And those are both true,
2: I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Something else feels alive. Like, what is it? I guess. I guess I'm feeling the weight of uh, I don't know. My sense is you and I are both wrestling with really important questions and values and how to do them at this time and in this culture, in this moment and just how it feels very big, like momentous and, um, like not easy and um yeah like that metaphor from Zach Stein of being between worlds it's like there's not really a world to settle into or like a, even even a system to go into like it's i feel like just over here i think like yeah you can join maple and we both did and i think that was that was very valuable for me and formative for me and also they're almost having to boots really bootstrap something and a, a culture, and there's not a there's not a pre-existing culture that where that makes sense that kind of endeavor makes sense. And that's really hard. That's like so hard, so hard to to bootstrap something like that without uh, a cultural context for it. And they're doing it, and it's, you know, but it's also hard. And like really unexpectedly hard. And I'm feeling that in this moment of um just how. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think this frame that you have of trauma healing and eros and relinquishment, I feel like if I'm hearing you correctly, like Eros is the hardest one for you right now. Is is that was that is that fair to say?
1: It's uh I would say so, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe just like historically in your life, like connecting to that and mm-hmm. um I feel like at this point in my life, the and re- and really the whole my whole life like the relinquished one meant one has been the hardest and like very attached to specific things and um, uh, I'm really living my life right now so that it's possible to tend the flame of my eros and like act on the energy in that and I see that as a good thing and you know I'm doing a lot of projects that I'm proud of and I think I help people um, you know including having conversations like this. And also it really, even just at this juncture, like last few weeks, I feel like there's been a mood for me of seeing how uh, this is so hard to look at or sit with, or um, really acknowledge it's, it's like a haze in my mind or in my heart of I think like ways in which I need to um, come back into connection with relinquishment and That aspect of the path but like without sacrificing the um clarity that i have about eros and uh like it's not it's not really clear to me how to do that and that's what part of this weight is is like well you know and this is very this is very um like cartoonish or like a caricature of our respective situations, but it's like, oh, well, if you put someone who's like in a kind of renunciate context in a monastery, they're going to have trouble with Eros. And if you take them out of the monastery, they're going to have trouble with relinquishment. And like, there's not really a good way to just like set someone up for success so that like they're, they're working on the trauma healing. They're like trusting their aliveness and their life energy and their desires. And they're also like clarifying and purifying their mind. It's like, it makes sense to me that I would be having trouble with how to connect to relinquishment while sustaining my Eros and that you would be you know, trying to figure out how to connect <laughs> to that Eros while in a renunciative environment. It's like, that's really hard. And like you and I are having to, <laughs> and the people we know are having to figure out answers to this because we are between worlds. And um, like the answers that came to me yeah, I really looked around and I, I think you did as well, hearing your life story, like, what what are we going to do here? Like, what what are the options for how to live a life? And like, none of them really <laughs> seemed that satisfying to me. And um, including ultimately being in a monastery, it's like, there's something missing here for me. I need something else for at this point in my own life. And like, you have to, in the absence of good options, you have to struggle through and find your own way and like make a bunch of mistakes and like be really I feel really sloppy in this moment I'm just like oh like I'm not that good at anything and I'm just like kind (laughs) of mediocre at all the things I care about and I'm like duct taping this together to like try to help people and try to grow spiritually like I'm trying over here but it's like (laughs) like really duct tape and like chewing gum and like i don't know like really like shortcuts i don't even know i'm doing like oh it's. i'm trying i'm really trying you know
1: so yeah me too brother yeah <laughs> yeah dude even with the structure of maple you'd think like oh there's like a structure you get just do, 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 do. it's all laid out no it's not it's not
0: got like weave your way through that whole ecosystem like how do i do this
1: each of us it's crazy each of us at maple is having a totally different experience our paths are so different here mm. Mm. seriously mm. i don't know what some of these other people are going through <laughs> uh,
0: they're all worlds <laughs> into themselves you know everyone everyone really uh that's why I love these conversations. It's just like, what really try to see for you know some hours. Like, what's it like to be this person, and what are they going through, and what are they clear about, and what's hard for them, and um, yeah. At this juncture of our conversation, I feel just such a kinship of that of like this like. Ugh. Duct tapey quality, honestly. Like and, and, and like, I admire it. I admire that about myself and about you. Like, this is not a criticism. It's just like, wow, we're doing really hard yeah, no. things. And like, no,
1: I like duct tape, but, man. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> oh man, oh man. I'm curious, Tasha. And like, um, when I when I think of relinquishment, I honestly think of heartbreak. Mm. As like very related Mm. and so I'm just curious are you someone who goes through a lot of heartbreak oh do you have like a lot of heartbreak
0: there's so much heartbreak in my heart uh (laughs) it's been a real theme and uh you know honestly um this is something that's been really prominent for me is in the past months that that we may have spoken about in person but so my mom, my mom had a cancer diagnosis, uh, late 2020 and that's when I found out about it. And so, and she died earlier this year, 2023. And so she'd had cancer for about three years. And, um, I think in some ways, the first day that I found out was the hardest. I was just like, oh, there's so much, like, it just took me by total surprise. I mean, well, you know, my mom was Mm -hmm. pretty young relatively. And, um, uh, know i was i was thinking her, her mom died at like 94 or something so i was just like thinking she'd live till she was like 94 or something and um anyway i how to put it i was really expecting her dying to be very hard and just excruciating and um although i'm i was sad very sad and miss her and of course wish she was still here it's been so much easier than I expected. And I feel like um, the re- the my sense is that I, because I have already gone through a lot of heartbreak in this life and a lot of confusion and insanity, actually. There was a brief chapter of insanity, I would say. Very brief chapter, uh, which... Um,
1: I think I know about it, maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, like I've gone through some hard things already and this is, this is in fact very natural. It's like, yep, I didn't expect this when i first found out but i knew it was coming and people die and um and also that i had a good relationship with my mother like we had a good a good relationship and there weren't grievances on either side and that made it a lot easier too but um yeah i've had more of the story being lots of heartbreak and confusion and pain and um that's um yeah been a learning experience so i've learned from that yeah why why do you ask
1: I guess because to me, my experience with relinquishment has been deeply tied to Mm. heartbreak. Right. So this Eros comes and gives you like these beautiful images of what could be, but then most of them have to die. Mm. Most of them like don't actually ever see life. And um, that feels most painful in like, relationships that could go somewhere but like don't for whatever reason or you have to let go of like a bond or like a, a potential with someone else and um, that lesson to me has been a great teacher in terms of relinquishment just forcing me into the position of having to relinquish that
0: I think you're absolutely right. And there's a teaching for me and how you're speaking about this. And I'm also noticing how, and I think this really speaks highly to Maple and, and so are you, how my emotional tone around the word relinquishment, despite my own nature of really just like kicking and screaming against relinquishment is actually quite, uh, the tone is quite positive of like, ah, yes, I see that this is good. And, um, Uh, I can feel how, how good it is to relinquish and let go in a way that I don't think I would have understood. It probably even when we met three or four years ago. um, But certainly before I started training, uh, it's like, yes, you're actually, it's it's a relief to let go of things. It's, it's a joy to (laughs) let go of things. And uh, yeah. uh, um, It's like cleaner, cleaner. Yeah. Like cleaning off your glasses Mm -hmm. It's like, yep, get to, I always forget to clean my glasses. I, I should, shouldn't be speaking oh, about really? this metaphor. Yeah. People are always like, your glasses I love cleaning are really my
1: glasses. dirty. I love cleaning my glasses. Is... Tasha, do you carry around like a, like a glasses cleaner? Like one of those cloths? Uh,
0: I do, but no, do no. I use it as often oh, as do? I might, you know, uh, probably not so this is this is this is just like you know the way you do anything is the way you do everything i i know how i have i know how to clean glasses i have a glasses cleaner but just kinda like, uh, <laughs> uh, don't get around oh. to it as often as i probably should
1: that's funny i didn't know this about you with like the difficulty around relinquishment
0: No oh, kicking and screaming my friend i think uh <laughs> That's, that's really I mean, I don't know how you think about insanity, but when I went insane it was like how hard can I kick and scream uh, about oh, it? it's like you could kick kick and scream enough that you are just deluded uh, about what's uh, happening and same yeah. with heartbreak actually. it's like you're just mm-hmm. if you fight it, it it's it, it there's delusion in that yeah
1: totally yeah yeah, I'm going through a version of that where people are leaving the community. At Maple, there's like four residents
2: mm.
1: who are gonna leave. I am at least I'm I'm in denial about at least like two of those people or something. Like mm. I just like can't I just can't get it in, in here that like there's they're gonna leave. Mm. Saying nope. goodbye is so hard, Tashin. Do you have any do you do you know how to say goodbye to people? I just, we don't.
0: You know, it's funny you ask because, um, well, one, I found this very hard when I was there, you know, I, especially the apprentices, like I realized after a certain point, I think you call them, uh, what do you call them now? Stewards. Uh, stewards. Yeah. They're, anyway, I realized at a certain point, like, I just like really fell in love with them and was like, Oh, they're so amazing. And then uh, like, they would leave after like three months. I was like, no, I just like became really good friends with you and whatever. Um, but oh. um, yeah, I think, I'm reminded of there's a tweet I wrote about that touches on this topic of to be on pilgrimage to wander from here to there is to constantly be saying goodbye and hello to constantly be confronting the fact that we will not have infinite time together to constantly be rejoicing in the gift of the time that we do have alive alongside the ones we love. Um, Yeah, I think, I think the way that I'm living right now where I stay with folks for a night or a few months. It's like I every so often I have to say goodbye and I have to do that. And but I'm also saying hello to someone else and a different place when I do that. And so it's always hard to say goodbye, but there's a art in it and a joy in it, even. And um I feel like one knowing that I'm saying hello to something else, and um also while I'm with someone. Knowing that it's always been finite, like it's it's always it's there's always a goodbye or an end, and also that there isn't because, like you you know I left Maple more than two years ago now, and here you and I are, we're still connected, you know still <laughs> talking, and I think especially with the view of reincarnation, it's like I may literally never see someone again in this life, but I believe if we have karmic connections, we will bump into each other again, and so that makes it easier to say goodbye as well as like eh, you know. I may very well never see this person again in this lifetime but even then you're connected to them you know you think of them you feel things about them you remember things about them people we we are we're, we're um we touch each other's hearts you know we we the impact that we have when we're present with people people remember that they remember how you made them feel and the things that you did together and what you learned what they learned from you and um being you can be connected to that even if someone's dead or uh, physically very far away, or you can't talk to them for some reason, or um, you know, even if it's just a couple months until you see them again, you're still all of that is still there.
1: I feel like I need like to get into the really nitty gritty details of how to say goodbye because I'm so confused. Mm. So like, is there like a ritual? Like, how do you? Because I think my tendency is just to like sometimes I just pretend I just kind of ignore the whole goodbye process sometimes
2: Hmm.
1: I just like don't even take the time to like say the goodbye or like have the hug I mean often I do but sometimes I'm just like I'm just going to ignore that this whole thing is happening and like pretend like no there's no goodbye happening here it's just like a continuation and like I'll see them the next time or something, but I'm curious, like, do you make an effort to say goodbye? Then, then what kind of ritual, like, is there like some, how do you embody a goodbye? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but. No, I that have. Is the question.
0: I think one of the beauties of saying goodbye on a pilgrimage is, uh, how, um, personal and specific this can be. And that really helps is, um, the way that I would say goodbye to one person is different than another person. And, um, but, Hmm. I don't think there are, there are some things I sometimes do, but I don't always do. And so I don't think I actually have a coherent ritual of saying goodbye, but I make sure to say goodbye. And, um, I think say anything that's on my heart, that's loving and appreciative to that person, try to say that. And that's what that is, is going to depend on the situation. But, um, and like, I feel like, yeah, when I'm with someone, when I stay with someone, for example, of course they're putting me up, and sometimes they feed me, or, you know, help me in various practical ways. So I always thank them for those things, and for and that that makes my life possible and my work possible. So I'm grateful for that, the practical support. But what's even more valuable to me, as valuable as that is, and how grateful I am for that, is is the um, energetic exchange or or the um, anything that I may have learned spiritually while I was with them or, um, kind of interpersonal connection that happened. And, you know, as I said earlier in this conversation, I really try to keep my eyes and ears and heart open to people and that I can learn something from everyone and, um, to touch into that and be like, you know, the way that you did this thing really taught me something. And to say, thank you for that. Or, you know, we shared this experience together and I really appreciated that. And, um, saying those authentic loving words is um a good healthy way to say goodbye to really honor the heart and what's there and you know you don't want to fake it because people can feel it if it's fake like you know so i always say the thing that's actually authentic and that might just be like thank you for hosting me i really appreciate it you know that is uh, but um whatever is the authentic loving thing to say i will say that and i suppose additionally if there was something that needed to be said interpersonally to like clean something up, you know, apologize or, um, you know, tell them how something made me feel. I would do that. That doesn't happen very often, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, if, I think that's important too, to like, but yeah, I, I think that's what, what I'm saying is like steer towards a really clean goodbye where it's like, you can reconnect mm-hmm. to love together. And sometimes that needs means like saying the difficult thing and, um, but it also means saying the authentic loving thing. And I think that that's mostly how I try to say goodbye is like, get to that point. Which is a is a is a very um, subjective, cut like almost a custom variable point like where that it depends on that relationship. So
1: this is very helpful.
2: Mm. I'm Thank
0: glad. You. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I'm curious. What are the things that you're to the extent that you're connected to this Eros that you're desiring or wanting from your life and what is that pulling you towards?
1: (laughs) Um man, this is some this is some spicy territory. This is some like really personal shit. (laughs) You can say
0: or not say whatever you'd like, my friend.
1: um, I will say almost to kind of there's a way I kind of just want to like put that out there to get it out of the way but there's a way that I actually like have this like deep yearning for awakening that is fueled by Eros such that like I have a kind of deep hypothesis or something that like I can kind of anything this Eros yearns for, I can somehow pull it into my deep desire for awakening. Like there's that option or something. Like I don't have to move towards a thing in the world necessarily. Mm -hmm. I can put it into the energy for awakening. Um, And that's like, pretty great um but in terms of like what the eros yearns for in the world i mean i'm i'm a renunciate but there is a deep yearning for companionship right now like there's a yearning for like deep connection and relationship and this also very present awareness of like It's crazy how much trust I have in like this whole process because there's a sense of like, I'm not ready actually. Like you'd be like a bad, this is not the right time for this. (laughs) Uh, It may never come around for me in this lifetime and that's okay. But I'm so aware how like I'm corrected whenever the Eros tries to come out and grab something for, like, kind of more egoic preferences or, like, selfish hoarding instinct or survival or whatever, there's a way whenever the Eros is, like, not clean in that way, like, things just don't work out. Like, it it never, like, lets me just have something when it's with that kind of energy. So, like... I'm still working on cleaning that up mostly. Um, every, all the energy is kind of mixed in with all this like donkey, like, yeah. You ever heard the term love addiction? Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm faced with. Hmm. It's like an anorexic form of it. Um. I mostly have never allowed myself to like want things in that. I mean, I've dated plenty of people and I've had sex with plenty of people, but like to actually want like deep intimacy, like vulnerable intimacy to actually reveal, say like a genuine heartfelt crush on somebody. That's like, that has been like all prohibited by my own like restriction Mm. so i'm undoing all of that um and um now like the actual arrows can kind of come out and like now i actually feel like like i actually can have crushes on people (laughs) Mm. Mm. um Or I might yearn for being, like, um, maybe just, like, being able to see someone more often than I currently do. Or, um, yeah, so I think a lot of my, that, that for me is about connection and intimacy. And in terms of, like, creating things, I really don't have much arrows in that direction right now.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: I'm glad you answered. Thank you for answering.
1: Um, um oh yeah I also want to mention um I'll be going on a sort of pilgrimage myself. Um there's this thing that our friend Autumn does called the Chautauqua tour. And so from October to through December, I'll be there on tour with her. And like, there's gonna be six of us total. And we're gonna be like touring the United States and maybe some of Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's gonna be like, as you put it, like, you know, just a lot of goodbye and hello and yeah. Resonating with your, your description mm. of that. And, and feeling like, oh man, I have to face that soon. That's going to be
2: mm.
1: a new level for me. Mm. Yeah, To open my heart to so many different people, and then have to depart, like you know. Ooh. Mm. How do you do it, friend?
0: You know that I did two walking pilgrimages while I was at Maple and now I do this. I re, I think I'm. I started recently. I'm like, oh, I think I should call it my service pilgrimage because that's what it feels like. It's like different than a walking pilgrimage. It's not the same thing that Peace Pilgrim did. Obviously, I like fly, I use money, you know, I go from, but I do go from place to place. And, you know, it's my own thing. But anyway, um, I'm just, you know, I think in a lot of ways, when I was in training, I was like, what's the idiom, like a a square peg in a round hole, you know, it's just like trying to fit into the thing. And it's like, it's good. I'm, I'm, as I've said, I'm really grateful for the time that I spent there and learned so much and grew so much. And I am who I am now because of it, able to do much more than I ever imagined. And also it was like, uh, you know, maybe I have some more trauma healing or relinquishment to do that wouldn't surprise me, but like, just so many things were, were very, very hard and not a fit for me. And um, but there's a way in which like pilgrimage is something that is a fit. It's like, I, I remember, um, sorry, you're actually talking about if I, if I'm not misremembering, like how every spiritual tradition and practice like has a price, it's like, there's a price you have to pay and it's different price mm-hmm. in different traditions. But like, you know, if you go to do a sweat lodge, it's like, okay, you can't leave and it's really hot. And like, that's the price. (laughs) It's like, you know, if you're in a monastery, it's like, okay, you're not like working on wall street or like doing some other job. You're like, you're in the monastery and like, that's the price. And there's a schedule and you have to be at the different places at the different times. And that's a price. And maybe the price of pilgrimage is saying goodbye, like constantly saying goodbye and not, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I know so many of my peers really want to pick a city and a place and a community and like build community and like have family. And like yeah. when I'm on pilgrimage, you know, I may not, I, I I like Peace Pilgrim committed basically a long-term commitment with specific terms. I haven't felt the call to do that. It's much more of a month by month thing for me. But when I am on pilgrimage, uh I'm actively choosing not to do that, not to have one place and um, one community and one people. And that means I'm always saying goodbye. And it means I'm never like I'm always with at least one friend or family member or someone that I know well. Um, but I'm also always away from all of my other friends. And I'm, you know, like I will never be with all of my friends at once. And of course that's true for most people now in, in a global world, but like that's very, um, acute and, um, Prominent in my way of life because it's not like, Oh, you know, I'm, I live in Austin or or the Bay and I just, every Saturday I go to CrossFit or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, mm-hmm. I, I don't have that. And I don't have routine either. Like this is something that's hard for me as I don't mm-hmm. really have habits or routine in the way that I was so used to for so many years. Um, and I like that, but it also has certain disadvantages and um, yeah. But anyway, there's something about the the spiritual structure and the price of pilgrimage that feels very fitting for me where it's like, oh, I I know how to do that and I can do that and I can reap the like spiritual rewards of it. Um, not not in this like acquisitive way, but I, I know how to make use of the opportunity to grow spiritually and cultivate virtues and stuff like that. And um mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like feels very fitting. So uh, I'm I'm like, how do you do what do you do? <laughs> like celibacy, <laughs> that sounds that sounds hard. Uh,
2: oh
1: man. Well, like, you you know, you basic. Well, you've been sell. You are celibate somewhat of the time at Maple. Uh, maybe like
2: uh,
0: incel. <laughs> you know, I never. I don't think I ever made a commitment to celibacy uh, sure, that sure I recall. Thing, yeah. So yeah, um, but you know, and also just the yeah, way yeah. of life that you're choosing of being committed to something like that. it's, um, you know, I I have a sense of what that takes and I admire it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm Yeah. I'm feeling admiration for your lifestyle and kind of seeing like what it actually takes to do it. And, um, I think it really helps that you have a certain level of discipline, like just a certain level of self-discipline. Cause like without the routine of like a schedule and everything being different so often, how do you, how do you keep it? How do you keep something going? How do you keep it together? Like, how do you like keep showing up? And it's like, well, Tashin has caution has that inner there's like an inner discipline it's like an inner commit inner ability to commit um yeah
0: i actually you know recently i've been feeling very undisciplined and i think to the extent that i have what you're pointing to it comes from this eros of like clarity of aliveness and like oh this is a good Mm -hmm. thing so i will do this and you know peace pilgrim said this she said you know you um you start to. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but you start to connect to your place in the life pattern by just doing every good thing that you can think of, even though they're just little good things at first. And that's basically what I've been doing for years. Is like, oh, if something seems good, if I'm like, yep, this is good, then I'll do it. And um, that's mm. an intrinsically rewarding and like motivating thing for me. But when it comes to like, you know, like I don't, I don't I don't practice formally very often these days. Um, I you know it's like I, I can't force myself to do that or um, sometimes I have trouble with uh, like eating enough you know I've actually worked on that a fair bit like making sure I get three meals a day and like that that's actually my main routine now is like I will make sure I get three meals a day because it like goes <laughs> nice. poorly if I don't eat enough food and you know <laughs> if you're like you know because if you're in a city and you like have a house or an apartment it's much easier to have that kind of routine of like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. like I go to this grocery store on Sundays and I like buy the food and I buy these meals that I like. And, you know, then I know have this routine for cooking and stuff like that. But, you know, without that, that sounds kind of silly, but without routine or in changing place to place, it's much harder to have like, oh, I'm going to eat three meals a day and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, or because you can't routines and habits work based on, um, like having a momentum of like, you are in this place and, you know, you typically wake up around this time and like on weekends Mm. you do this. And it's like, there's a Mm. almost like karmic momentum of like, yep, I've been doing this thing and I just doing this thing. And that makes it much easier to have habits. And it's harder to do that if you're like, well, I'm in, you know, this European country now or something like, or whatever.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I like hearing about that. Uh, It seems like your life, really is propelled by Eros more or less like maybe on like a moment-to-moment basis is that true
0: yeah i have a lot of stuff scheduled these days you know like we've had this podcast scheduled for some weeks and um
1: mm-hmm.
0: but like i can commit to structures that are like well aligned with who what i know about myself i think i think to the extent that there is discipline it's based on self-knowledge of like yep i know this about myself and um i'm not going to stop caring about this overnight so it it actually isn't this is a big difference from a walking pilgrimage like a walking pilgrimage is extremely moment to moment it's like you get to an intersection and you turn left or you turn right and you don't know until you get there um it's (laughs) like all right i guess i'm going left this time and
2: nice
0: like that's a really valuable skill, um, I think to practice trusting and, and even I think relinquishment is in that you like relinquish your idea of what you're doing or where you're going or what you need. And it's just like, okay, well, how do you make a choice if you let go of all of that? And I could really connect to that in a walking pilgrimage in a way that I never really learned how to do in a meditation retreat or, or maybe I first learned it on pilgrimage. And, um, yeah, so this service pilgrimage is like less moment to moment and more like hour mm-hmm. yeah. uh, sure. to hour or day to day, month to month, uh, except like schedule things and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Good. Well, I'm so glad that we had time for this conversation. And, um, I think there's, I'm going to be reflecting on a lot of things that we talked about and, but also the, the characteristic of the conversation, I feel like, I've gotten this metaphor of um, in my mind of uh, like carving a statue and like, you know how like you get at this thing of rock and Mm. then you're like a statue like reveals itself if you chip away at it. And I feel like there's ways that I see you living your life and showing up to your life that I think are really hard to describe and put words to, and they're hard for me to reflect to you. And I think, you know, it seems like at, Points in this conversation. You've been like, oh, this is really hard to talk about. Uh, but I see you doing the things. And it's been a challenge, a, a delightful challenge for me to be like, well, how do I show through conversation this thing that I see you doing, but like neither of us really have words for? Like, how do I create a <laughs> container that like reveals that through conversation? And um, this also feels very duct tapey or like at my edge or sloppy of like, oh, I'm I don't think I'm quite good enough at that skill yet to like show up, but it's wonderful to practice. And like, so I can still mm-hmm. see those things so clearly, uh, even if they're hard to point at. And as I said, they've been very inspiring for me. And I think I really, I think that's another theme in this conversation is like almost being like foils and like very different people, but like who care about a lot of the same things and like complementary strengths and weaknesses. And that's been a really valuable for mirror for me to see you shining at things that are hard for me. And uh, pointing that out and and kind of giving me a glimpse of like, ah, oh, this is what it might look like to like try to care about and do this thing. That's really hard, uh, for me to do. And like, you seem to be able to pull off. So <laughs> well done. Uh, yeah, it's inspiring to me and, and, uh, spiritually fruitful for me. So thank you.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad that you live the way you live and, um, yeah I uh yeah it's beautiful it's just a beautiful way to live
0: thank you I'm glad oh, that we're thank you living beautiful lives together as friends so
2: mm. Yay. Mm. <laughs>